Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today with Ohio completely lifting its mask mandate on June 2nd, can we get enough people vaccinated in the next two weeks to reach herd immunity by that date? Also this morning, data from a new survey on the state of public health programs and funding by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Harvard University provides insight about how to better manage the next public health crisis. We'll dig into the numbers. And to your health this morning, melanoma is the deadliest form of skin cancer, but also one of the most curable. A reminder about the importance of timely screening, which is now easier than ever thanks to smart technology. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, May 17th, 2021. Today is income tax day. I don't mean to ruin your Monday, but it is tax day. If you have not filed yet, is your deadline to do that? Some of the uh, southern states got uh, bonus time because of the winter storm. They got, do they really need that? I mean, it uh, happened so long ago and it it seems like it's so, so long ago anyway. What was it? Texas and Oklahoma and uh, places down south. They got hammered by that uh, cold weather. I, I guess they're still recovering, so they've got a little extra time. But for the rest of us, it is income tax day today, which is normally April 15th. But we all got a break because of the pandemic once again this year. So if you haven't filed yet, today is the deadline. So make note of that. It is also National Cherry Cobbler Day, National Mushroom Hunting Day, National Pack Rat Day, National Walnut Day. It is World Hypertension Day and World Telecommunication and Information Society Day. That sounds very important, doesn't it? Some of the uh, reasons to celebrate today. So getting up and uh, back to work this morning. Kind of interesting. A new report from the World Health Organization finds that working long hours is not just something that you hate to do. It also can be deadly. Deadly, they say. A global study on deaths associated with working longer hours found that 745,000 people died from stroke and heart disease associated with long working hours. This was data from 2016, the most recent data they had access to. It is an increase of nearly 30% from the year 2000. So over the past decade and a half, we're working longer and we're dying more because of it. Study found that most of the victims, 72% were men and were middle-aged or older, and that the deaths often occurred later in life, sometimes decades later than when they actually worked the long hours. So just because you don't keel over at your desk does not mean that those long working hours aren't shortening your life. Interesting. Maria Niera, the director of the World Health Organization's Department of Environment, Climate Change, and Health, said working 55 hours or more per week is a serious health hazard. Officials noted that the surge in remote working during the pandemic, as well as the global economic slowdown from the crisis, may accelerate the growing trend of deaths from long hours. So I know exactly what you wanted to hear on this Monday, but if you need an excuse for ducking out of work early, there you go. You're welcome. 
Elsewhere, some of the other uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to know. First thing out of the gate on this Monday. If your thumb is ever in pain, it could be due to how much scrolling it does. Uh, marketing agency crunched some numbers and they estimate that we spend, get this, 49 minutes per day scrolling through social media sites on our phones. Just aimlessly scrolling through Facebook, Twitter, and so on. They say that means a person's thumb travels 49 minutes per day. That means a person's thumb travels the equivalent of 52 miles a year, which works out to two marathons. Your thumb, you're giving your thumb quite a workout. And excessive smartphone use can cause what they call scroller thumb, where the Thumb begins to cramp, gets inflamed, or gets stuck in a bent position. (laughs) Hey, doctor, I don't know. My uh, my thumb seems to be stuck. It's bent and it's stuck. I can't move it. (laughs) This is a real thing, apparently. Dr. Eugene Tsai is a specialist at Cedars-Sinai Hospital and says that the condition can lead to arthritis and says that scroller thumb may be more associated with smaller phones, while larger phones and tablets usually call, uh, cause pain in the fingers and wrists. You can avoid scroller thumb by switching to using other fingers instead. <laughs> like your forefinger. Um, and if you're typing, don't just use your thumbs to type. Use the voice control features to dictate messages and emails instead of typing. And you can also do daily stretching exercises with your wrists and your fingers. So, again, some very important health news to start off your Monday morning. You're welcome. (laughs) Want to help you avoid scrolling thumb. Man modern society. These are the things that we have to worry about. This was kind of interesting off the uh, newswire. Hard seltzers uh, are really hot these days. And this summer, one beverage company is putting a twist on the hard seltzer craze. Crook and Marker teaming up with Brewmate to launch a pickle-flavored hard seltzer. This summer. Now, you may recall uh, back last year, Brewmate announced a dill uh, flavored drink as an April Fool's joke, but fans were disappointed learning that it was all a joke. And so the uh, company decided, why not? We're going to go ahead and and do it since it started out as a joke, but (laughs) people decided that. This is what they give the people what they want, they said. So this year, the two companies are announcing Afternoon Delight for real this time. The pickle-flavored hard seltzer will be a limited release. Uh, Report is that 10,000 12-packs will be distributed. So when you see it on store shelves this summer, grab it before it's gone Pickle-flavored hard seltzer. No, thank you. You can have mine. I'm not into the hard seltzers anyway, 
but I'd really not be into a pickle-flavored hard seltzer. But to each his own, I guess. There are a lot more Liams and Olivias than there used to be. The Social Security Administration is out with their annual list of the most popular baby names. Because you figure the Social Security Administration knows. Because all babies born in the U.S. have to be registered with Social Security. And so they have every baby name for 2020. Theoretically, anyway. I guess there are some that probably slip through the cracks. But the most popular baby names for 2020... At the top of the list for boys, Liam. Top of the list for girls, Olivia. Uh, Now, in fact, the top three boys and girls' names both remain the same from 2019. For the boys, it's Liam followed by Noah and Oliver. Top three names for boys in 2020. For girls, Olivia number one, Emma and Ava. Numbers two and three. The fastest growing names... For the year, Zaire for boys, Z-Y-A-I-R, Zaire for the boys. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where that comes from. I, I honestly don't. Is there some sort of pop culture reference there that I'm not aware of? I don't know. But Zaire, the fastest growing name for the year for boys. And for girls, the fastest growing name, Avaya, A-V-A-Y-A. A-H, Avaya. Are those like Game of Thrones names or something? Those sound like they would be Game of Thrones names. I don't know. Pop culture often influences uh, baby name trends. Uh, But those are the... That's the data from the Social Security Administration. Most popular and most and fastest growing baby names for the year 2020. And uh, how about this? Something to chew on. I know we're just past the presidential election cycle and we haven't yet begun the midterm election cycle. So I hesitate to bring in bring up anything election related because it's kind of nice to (laughs) have a break for a while. But this is kind of interesting. The possibility of actor Matthew McConaughey running for governor of Texas is apparently more than just talk. Politico has a new report out. It says the actor has been quietly making calls to influential people in Texas political circles. And among the many questions for a possible run would be that uh, Matthew McConaughey has never really said whether he is a Democrat or a Republican. And over the past, he has taken positions on issues that align him with both parties. So it's hard to tell whether he would run as a Democrat or Republican. Uh, Also makes it hard to guess what his platform might be. But here's maybe an even more substantial issue or hurdle that he would have to overcome. It turns out that Matthew McConaughey himself does not vote very often. In fact, he has only voted twice since 2012. Uh, That would be in the 2018 midterms and the 2020 general election. Kind of interesting. And he has not voted in any primaries. Similarly, and to an even greater degree, Andrew Yang, the failed 2020 Democratic presidential candidate who is leading in the polls in a race for New York City mayor, has never voted in a mayoral election in the city that he is now running to be mayor of. Asked about it in a debate last week, Mr. Yang said, 
that New Yorkers should not be concerned about it, that he is invested in the city because he is a public school parent and walks the city streets, and that lots of Democrats don't vote in local elections. So it begs the question, would you vote for a political candidate who doesn't vote him or herself? Really an interesting I uh, really an interesting question. I've never really considered that, but I think that does raise some questions. Should our political candidates at least vote? I mean, they're going to have positions that you may or may not agree with, but beyond that, shouldn't they at least vote themselves? Interesting. So, but maybe in 2020, I guess that maybe that doesn't matter, but, uh, I just thought that was interesting, and one of those things that we don't hear often reported, the voting record of the candidates themselves uh, in elections. So, anyway, something, some uh, interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Monday morning started here. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast, partly to mostly cloudy today with the high of 73, mostly cloudy tonight, a low of 57. The first group of OH Fame apprentices graduated in a ceremony held at the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts. Trisha Valesque, executive director of Raise the Bar Hancock County, says the Earn While You Learn program brings local manufacturers and educators together to create a skilled workforce pipeline to area jobs. They've been employed with these companies for the past two years. They've split their time where they've been working three days per week and then attending Owens two days per week. Romark, GSW, and Cooper Tire are among a few of the companies participating in the program. Learn more about it on our website. We had the pleasure of meeting Vietnam War veteran Huey pilot Phil Marshall at the Armed Forces Day celebration at the Hancock County Fairgrounds over the weekend. These two aircraft actually flew in the Battle of the Iodrang Valley, which was the battle that was uh, documented in the movie We Were Soldiers with Mel Gibson. Okay. Not in the movie. Uh, These aircraft flew in the battle. On the left. Wow. Yeah. And they have the damage, battle damage to show for it. Phil's part of a group raising money for a National American Huey History Museum, and they were giving rides to people who became a member of the museum. See video and get more details on our website. Ohio's tourism industry is looking to make a comeback this year. Matt McLaren, director of Ohio Find It Here, says one thing they'll be promoting more this year are road trips. All the research we see... People want to travel again, but they want to start with that first trip by car. And Ohio is going to benefit from that so much uh, because we are an easy-to-drive-to state. We're spending a day's drive at 60% of the United States. He says people are wanting to get out after the past year-plus of being cooped up. Get more on our website. Finley City Auditor Jim Stasiak has announced the release of the city's new open finance portal. He says the release of this user-friendly tool keeps Finley on the leading edge of government transparency by clearly showing how the city spends its money. He says the new portal allows people to view information at the highest level of reporting and to drill down to individual transactions. We have a link to it on our website. And get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Well, a recent survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation finds uh, still a significant level of hesitation surrounding the COVID-19 vaccine. And with the state of Ohio lifting virtually all of its health orders in just a couple of weeks, we're joined this morning by Dr. Linda Bradley of the Cleveland Clinic. And Dr. Bradley, we know 
that herd immunity is the key to ending the epidemic. And you have a campaign called Get the Vaccine to Save Lives to try and help us get there. With the governor's announcement that state health mandate is going to be lifted at the beginning of June here in just a couple of weeks, do you kind of feel as though the, the clock is ticking to somehow, some way, get us to that magic number in just a couple of weeks? Yeah, I'm always an optimist, and I think programs like this are going to help educate us um, and remind us that the vaccine is safe, effective, and it will allow us to achieve herd immunity and get back to normal activities. So I think people, sometimes people wait, um, and I think more and more that we're seeing these great numbers come out. If I can pause for a second and just give you our great numbers as a storytelling uh, event, here at the Cleveland Clinic, and you're in Ohio, just up the road from the Cleveland Clinic, uh, you know, we take care of our enterprise. 25% of Ohioans that had COVID have been treated at one of our Cleveland Clinic hospitals. A recent study looking at 5,782 patients admitted to the Cleveland Clinic from January to about April 15th. Um, Chris, out of that uh, 5,700-plus patients, 10 of them have been vaccinated, which means that the majority, 99.9%, were never vaccinated. So the beauty is, right now at the Cleveland Clinic, I could take you through our wards, through our intensive care unit, through our high acuity areas, and say that when you look in the beds in the ICU, that 99% of those patients, and for COVID, never been vaccinated. Yeah. So I think when we start getting out these numbers to say, hey, you haven't been vaccinated, have you heard the good news? And we can see it among people that are vaccinated. And finally, those three things, four things that you need to know, if you are vaccinated, the herd immunity really matters. But for you as an individual, you are less likely to die from COVID. You are less likely to be admitted to the hospital, less likely to ever get to an ICU, less likely to ever be intubated where a machine is breathing from you. And if you get a disease, very likely to be mild. Those are the facts that matter, um, if you ask me. So I think we will, more and more good things are coming out of the numbers that we're seeing. And as we tell a great story, I'm hoping that this will be very influential and persuasive for our listeners. Uh, A lot of people have keyed in on the fact that uh, these vaccines are not FDA approved, that they are only authorized for emergency use. And many people equate that to experimental How do we know, and this is ground that we have covered before, but just to reiterate, how do we know that the vaccines are safe and effective? Well, because the vaccines um, are safe because they've gone through rigorous clinical trials to determine safety and efficacy with follow-up. And the mRNA vaccine, despite its claim to warp speed, this vaccine is Uh, has been available for more than 15 or 20 years. And what this vaccine, it's used in other things right now. Uh, Phase two trials for the treatment of ovarian cancer, for melanoma uh, study, for head and neck tumors. So the beauty of science is that they can add a uh, uh, information to the mRNA vaccine that basically says recognize COVID. So when you get the shot in the arm, I got the shot, hopefully you got the shot, my family got the shot. When that shot went in my arm, what it does is sends a signal to your body, my body, our body to say, recognize the COVID, um, uh, that uh, COVID infection, 
it doesn't give you COVID, but it's going to kind of put a warning sign out, a wanted sign that helps your help to recognize COVID. So if you're exposed to it, you get it, your immune system by being vaccinated, chews it up, eats it, so you don't, don't see the disease. And that's what's happening in several of our cancer trials. Yes, as an OBGYN, we cut out ovarian cancer, six, eight, 10 hour surgeries, give you chemo, but it has a chance to come back. And what the clinical trials are doing, using the same vaccine, an mRNA uh, particle, to say now we say primate to recognize ovarian cancer reoccurrence. Chew it up before the patient has symptoms and for the doctor and any technology can pick it up. So I want people to realize that this is not new. It's not experimental. And the FDA has done a wonderful job with studies that include black and brown people, 10 to 17% of the studies. Now we are this week, 12 to 15 year olds are getting vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Trials looking at babies, even kids, even younger. So I think what I just said, the numbers speak the truth. And we have to believe in science. And um, And 90% of physicians so far have gotten vaccinated. So I think I've been vaccinated and the numbers um, and what we're seeing really tell the story. You uh, touched on uh, the uh, fact that the, in addition to uh, having a ways to go before we reach herd immunity, uh, there is a great disparity within the minority population, specifically the African-American community uh, as well. So really trying to reach uh, that segment of the population with this campaign. And again, while, while we all will be glad to see an end to all of the restrictions and the mandates, uh, is the real danger in equating that to the end of the threat of the virus? Could you rephrase it just a little bit for me? I want to make sure I got the well, point that I, you're I, making I'm, when I answer your question. I'm wondering, is, uh, is there a risk that, or are you concerned that people will hear a lifting of the mandates and think to themselves that all of this is over and we've done everything we need to do and we can go back to life uh, as normal, vaccinated or not, or you know that this is the end of the threat? Okay, actually, okay, I get it. No, because we have to really reach herd immunity and for what I call fifth grade science, just think of herd immunity means that everybody that's in that room with you has a shield on, a bulletproof vest, or, or jacket, mm-hmm. um, and um, if exposed, the virus has to have a host. It can't just float around. It wants to attack. It wants to be there. You know what I'm saying? So if if you are vaccinated and you're exposed to the COVID vaccine, it ha- can't. And, and you know nothing's 100, percent but it's pretty darn close to it. It has no place to go, and then it just burns itself out. It's like Smokey the fire. You got to put out the fire, or you'll have a forest fire. And so if it just molders, it just keeps jumping from people to people that aren't vaccinated. I've already shown those numbers that show that if you're vaccinated, you're not likely to get it. So I just look at it as a shield around you and it just mothers out, keeps it, it just basically starves the um, COVID COVID, um, um, infection and it has no place to go. When there's no place to go, it's gone. You know, and that's kind of what we need. Otherwise, it's little pockets here and there. And then these people are really sick. And um, that's not good. Yeah. Again, Dr. Linda Bradley of the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, We mentioned the campaign, Get the Vaccine to Save Lives. Really quickly, where do folks uh, find more information on that? Two places. CDC website. Changes every day. Quick, easy, lots of information. Up to date, accurate, and factual. CDC website called vaccines, V-A-C-C-I-N-E-S dot gov. 
And the campaign one is called Our Shot 2 Saves Lives. O-U-R-S-H-O-T, the number two, save, S-A-V-E, live, L-I-V-E-S, dot org. Great information. Spread the word. And don't forget, um, vaccinate. Don't procrastinate. Dr. Bradley, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. I want to highlight this morning a new national poll from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Harvard University on the state of public health and public health funding that is particularly timely, I think, as we begin the process of setting policies that will help us better manage the next public health crisis. Joining us is Dr. Robert Blendon, co-director of the survey, and lay out some of the highlights from this poll that particularly stood out to you here. So uh, there are two directions, and they sort of point in almost opposite ways. Uh, On the positive side, uh, and we've been tracking this over years, uh, support for public health and understanding what it means has dramatically increased. And just one line here, when people talk about uh, public health, what they really mean is our efforts to prevent you from getting sick. Mm -hmm. That's what the public health. And so uh, what COVID has brought out is the desire not to be uh, ill being cared for, but what can you do to prevent it? And there's a willingness uh, to have the uh, government spend more money to try to beef up the capacity. And that's the positive side. The negative side, which I think uh, surprised us, is that there's a, a degree of uh, uh, distrust here that's quite high. Yeah. Uh, and so we found that uh, confidence in the public health system actually declined over the more recent uh, period, how well it worked. People uh, are, are much more negative about that. And yeah. they're much more positive about the medical care system. Yeah, uh, physicians and hospitals and nurses uh, uh, for that. And also we found uh, a considerable lack of trust of the major public health institutions for uh, uh, CDC, the FDA, while trust in physicians and nurses were incredibly high. Mm-hmm. So you have a situation where people re- recognize this is really a big area that's preventing something happening to you, uh, but uh, and we should spend more money on it, and it should work better. But the system's not working well, and we have a level of distrust to the information they're giving. Us. Yeah, I, I was not particularly surprised by the finding that there's a higher level of distrust for federal health agencies. I think there's a general distrust of federal government in general. I was somewhat surprised that local health departments uh, sometimes get caught up uh, in those low marks as well. Uh, getting lower marks than local healthcare workers in general. And I would have guessed that they would have been more or less on equal footing. You and I had the, the same uh, sort mm. of thoughts about what would happen. One of the things that's striking is, in general, when you ask people about uh, state government and et cetera, they almost, and local government, almost uh, rated much higher than, than federal level because the state and local government is more reflective of what's going on in people's lives. Sure. But we found that the state level in health, a third of people didn't trust the reports and information the state so, health departments were giving, and that's really quite uh, dangerous. And uh, local did a little bit better, but in general, 
uh, when you poll people about local government, it's always much higher rated than turned out to be mm-hmm. when you wrapped it around this public health epidemic. Yeah. So uh, with, with respect to that, then, I was also somewhat surprised by your finding, as you were mentioning earlier, that nearly three quarters of people subs- uh, support substantial increases in federal funding for public health programs. If they don't trust them, why give them more money? How do you reconcile those responses? Uh, so I, I, I think exactly w- what happened uh, is and uh, I, I think historians will end up writing about this has a 9/11 quality, a terrible disaster, and everything else. And how could this have happened? Or Katrina, level five. Mm-hmm. But people are saying to themselves, "This can't happen again." Yeah. So we've got to invest in making sure that we don't have another uh, event that played out this way. But. Uh, for people involved in that, they're saying the same thing. We don't like the way that system operated, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of distrust. Yeah. So there's a sense we can't have an event like this. We've got to be better protected. There can't be COVID-15 three years. Yeah, it, it are really scared, and they're tired, and they're frustrated. Uh, we don't want to go through this uh, they're again. They're willing to spend the money. Yeah. We don't uh, want to go through it again, and but that- they absolutely want the system to work a lot better than they see it uh, working this time. And with respect to funding, it's worth noting that Ohio is among the states with the lowest level of per capita public health funding at, I believe, $14 per resident. Now, that sounds very low, but put that into perspective. What is the average rate of per capita funding? Uh, So that I can't answer. I can tell you that the average state spends about 4% of its budget on public health. Okay. So, Uh, and again... And that, and that's just the average to say nothing of the states at the top of the list. So what is that extra, yeah. what does that extra spending get you? I mean, how much bang for the buck, as it were? Did the states at the top of the list fare any better during the pandemic than those at the bottom? Uh, so it's uh, really tricky to answer that. And Ohio would be a perfect example. Uh, uh, COVID spreads very quickly in dense populations. Uh, for that. So uh, a state that w- with New York City uh, or Los Angeles has a different issue, and you've got uh, Toledo, uh, Cleveland, etc. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're, the amount you have to do to protect people who are living very close to each other is different than a rural state. It doesn't mean you can't take precautions, but the expenditures uh, in an epidemic really are much more intense. The pressures, if people are very close, if you have a lot of people who are older and in nursing homes, uh, home care, that adds that. So it's not easy to compare uh, broadly if we're talking about the um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, COVID side. But what happened in most states is general over the last 15 years, uh, states have put all their discretionary money in expanding insurance coverage uh, through Medicaid, through children's programs, et cetera, and tended not to place a lot of uh, financial priority at all on the agency whose job it is to make sure that something doesn't happen. So medical care is about the best you can get once you're sick. Mm-hmm. Public health is about what we can yeah. do so you're not going to be in an ICU. And and that is and, uh, and that is just to jump in real quickly. That is an important distinction to make uh, that there is a difference between uh, public health and medical care. So uh, that uh, really yeah, emphasizes and that's, that. And the states put their money into the Medicare. Ex- 
Medicaid-type Medicare expansion mm-hmm. over the last 15 years, and they said these other things are just not that important. And then so, you had this terrible outbreak, and you said to yourself, I don't want to be in an ICU with the best care. I don't want to be sick. Right. And that's yeah. the public health. Yeah. Uh, so what is the, uh, in, in the final analysis, what's the great takeaway here from uh, from this survey moving forward as we, I, again, start the process of figuring out what we did well, what we did wrong, and how we can do better the next time? But see, that is your uh, right answer. Uh, we have to really have a bunch of bipartisan groups. And uh, one thing, uh, just for your, for your listeners, uh, we followed the, the history of the public and some of these big outbreaks, and we've never seen one before that was politically polarized. Mm. And that's awful. Uh, because uh, instantly, if I feel that the other party is just wrong on everything, that's not a good dis- place to have a discussion about where you should go and washing hands and, and everything else. Yeah. But we need a bipartisan look both at the national level and the state level. What could be done differently and how do we go about doing this so we have a higher level of trust? But to do mm-hmm. that, you require people who are not at, at party conflict with each other to look at this and say, and this is, in my view, just like 9-11, just like Katrina, mm-hmm. this can't happen again. What has to change? Who do we trust? How do we get them more respected? And how do they go about releasing information? And we need uh, to really look that through. Uh, and- uh, uh, so this doesn't play out this way again. Uh, we will leave it there. Again, uh, Dr. Robert Blendon is co-director of this uh, survey from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Harvard University on the state of public health and public health funding. Again, Dr. Blendon, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Talk again. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Leading off today's broken news, the story of a Kentucky man uh, who led police on a lengthy pursuit, was arrested, and how did the cops get their man? Because he ran out of gas. (laughs) It all happened Saturday when the Nelson County Dispatch in Kentucky received a call from the Kentucky State Police asking for help to catch a man driving a bright yellow 2015 Ford Mustang. Should not be too difficult to spot. Bright canary yellow. Uh, The uh, reason that they wanted this guy caught, he was clocked driving 143 miles an hour in a 70 mile an hour zone. (laughs) 143. More than double the posted speed limit. Uh, Eastbound on the Bluegrass Parkway. Authorities say the suspect, who turned out to be 47-year-old Stephen Alford, from Round Hill, Kentucky, subsequently led police on a long police chase, uh, so long, in fact, that he ran out of gas. Nelson County Sheriff's Office said in a statement posted on social media uh, that once he stopped, Mr. Alford refused to get out of his vehicle and that he had to be assisted by both the Nelson County Sheriff's Department and the Kentucky State Police. wonder how they assisted him out of the car. <laughs> he was transported to the Nelson County Jail 
charged with speeding, obviously, fleeing or evading, uh, reckless driving, four counts of wanton endangerment in the first degree, driving too fast for uh, weather conditions, <laughs> operating on a suspended or revoked license, improper passing, <laughs> resisting arrest, and just for good nature, they also cited him because his license plate was not legible. <laughs> They just threw the book at that guy. Well, his license plate probably wasn't legible because he went past him at 143 miles an hour. That'd do it. Elsewhere in the broken news, police in Phoenix, Arizona, put out an Amber Alert on Wednesday morning for an 18-month-old child after a couple reported that their baby had been taken when their truck was carjacked. Now, bear with me. There is a reason why this is in the broken news. Police did an intensive search of the area for the baby. They found the truck, but no child inside. And that's when they discovered that James Wagner, age 37, and Stormy Wagner, age 40, had fabricated the story of a missing child so that they could speed up police response to get their truck back. Nice. They, they made up the whole thing about the missing child, about the stolen child, because they figured it'd help them get their truck back faster. It did, although police said the resources used during this investigation uh, worked tirelessly to find the alleged kidnapped baby. With the facts as we now know them, the suspects will now be arrested and booked for false reporting to law enforcement. So they did get their truck back, though. So... I guess, <laughs> mission accomplished. Uh, in other broken news this morning, a Florida man, you knew that phrase was coming, a Florida man is behind bars following a crime spree on Wednesday. At approximately 10.30 in the morning, police responded to a call to the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office from a person claiming to have witnessed a carjacking. Minutes later, the same witness told police that the carjacking suspect committed a hit and run. The witness was still following the suspect when he said the man turned into a grocery store parking lot, parked, and entered the store. While inside the store, the suspect robbed someone. <laughs> he has had a full day right there, this criminal. That is a full day. Officers tell local news reporters they located the man inside the store and arrested him. At the time of his arrest, uh, the uh, Jacksonville Sheriff's Office says the suspect appeared to be suffering from unknown health issues and was transported to a local hospital in non-life-threatening condition. <laughs> that is a full day right there. You carjack someone, hit and run, and robbing uh, someone all within, you know, that's just that's a full day's work, and that was just one morning. So, he is nothing if not efficient. And finally, in the broken news this morning, from the international file, a man in Vancouver, British Columbia, who filed a $32 trillion lawsuit after being struck by a car while riding his bike, had his case tossed by a judge who claimed that the claims in the lawsuit were scandalous, vexatious, and otherwise an abuse of process. Tyler Chamberlain's demands included a private audience with Her Majesty the Queen, 
the suspension of trade with China, the dismantling of Transport Canada, the postponement of an election, the release of classified documents, the cleaning up of the swamp, in his words, the reconstruction of the RCMP, an MRI of his entire body, $32 trillion in cash, and 500,000 shares of Tesla. (laughs) Well, if you're going to file a lawsuit, go big. (laughs) Go big or go home. The lawsuit originally filed last year alleges Mr. Chamberlain suffered physical and emotional injuries in a hit-and-run back in 2018. He had since amended his claim to include the Queen, the Prime Minister, the Premier, the Supreme Court of British Columbia, Elections British Columbia, uh, Naniamo Regional General Hospital, and several other parties. The judge ruled that Mr. Chamberlain's approach to seeking relief against parties other than the uh, person in charge or person uh, responsible for striking him on his bike uh, was wrong. And the, and the Platons' claims are not reasonable and are scandalous, vexatious, and otherwise an abuse of the legal process. $32 trillion lawsuit thrown out of court. And I'll tell you what, sometimes, you know, the law is just stacked against you. It's, what's the average man to do? <laughs> Justice is not blind after all. There you go. Uh, That is today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. This is Ed Blentz with OSU Extension. It's planning season. Drivers will be sharing roads with tractors and farm machinery. Be alert for slow-moving vehicles, especially on roads with limited visibility. Watch out for equipment pulling in and out of fields. Drivers and farmers, let's work together this spring to keep our roads safe and accident-free. This message from WFIN and 95.5 FM. Time now for your daily download. The numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. This is really an interesting question. How long have you known your closest friend? A recent CBS News poll shows that when most Americans think about who their closest friend is, they think of someone who has been a part of their lives for quite a while. And that's probably not surprising. If I were to think of my closest friend, it'd probably be somebody that I've known for for quite some time. Uh, Nearly one-third of those in this poll say they have known their closest friend for some time between 10 and 25 years. Uh, Just over 25% have known that person between 25 and 50 years, and 1 in 10, about 10%, have known their closest friend for 50 years or more. But, and this is where the numbers get rather interesting, for some Americans, their closest friendship was formed much more recently. 29% in this survey say that they have known their closest friend for less than a decade. Less than 10 years. Now, that's nearly as nearly one in three say they have known their closest friend for less than 10 years. And 11% say they have known that person for five years or less. (laughs) 
Well, to your health this morning, would it surprise you to learn that one in five Americans develop skin cancer uh, during their lifetime? In fact, it says here, every hour of every day, one American dies from melanoma, uh, the deadliest of skin cancers, also one of the most uh, preventable and, and treatable. And uh, joining us this morning is dermatologist Dr. Julie Karen to talk more about uh, new ways of uh, getting your skin checked at your dermatologist's office or even at home. And Dr. Karen, first of all, thanks for uh, taking the time. want to start with some of those basic statistics. One in five Americans developing skin cancer during their lifetime. I think most people would have no idea that the number was that high. Yes, it is an astounding number, and that number gets worse every single year. Uh, melanoma is the deadliest of all forms of skin cancer, and it's expected that there will be about 207,000 diagnosed this year in the United States. But the good news is you said it's treatable, and when it's caught early, it is very treatable with a five-year survival rate of 99%. Yeah. But unfortunately, if diagnosis is delayed and it is already metastasized, that five-year survival drops precipitously to 15%. It, it really should not be that a cancer that is 99% uh, survivable uh, is also the uh, deadliest form of uh, skin cancer. A lot of, that's probably due to a lot of uh, myths and misperceptions out there. Uh, debunk some of those for us. Sure. So, you know, one of the myths relates to, can we impact our risk of melanoma? And the answer is yes, we very much can. We know that 86% of melanomas and 90% of all skin cancers are attributable to exposure to the sun. But so often people look to their, you know, past when they were not very careful in the sun and they think that all the damage is done and it's too late to make a difference. But we do know that implementing sun smart behaviors at any age can reduce your risk of melanoma. In fact, wearing a daily sunscreen can reduce your risk of melanoma by about 50%. Furthermore, we, we talked about how treatable it is if it's early. So really, we should view melanoma as something where deaths don't need to happen. Melanoma deaths are almost entirely avoidable, but that only can happen if people are getting checked. And so often people think, well, I'm not going to go get checked because I'm you know, scared of surgery and scarring. But surgery isn't the only way to get your moles checked now. There is an innovative way called the DermTech Melanoma Test that can non-invasively but very accurately diagnose melanoma at the earliest possible stage. And as we mentioned, uh, this, is, this new test that we referenced uh, can not only be done at your dermatologist's office, but also at home with the suddenly popular telehealth appointments. Explain how this works. Yes. Yeah, so during the pandemic, we saw an explosion of telehealth. And although, you know, things are opening back up, there is still sometimes a role. But basically, whether you are in your dermatologist's office or being supervised by your dermatologist via telehealth, this very easy-to-use test can be used because it involves applying smart stickers to the lesion of concern. The area is then circled, and the smart sticker is gently removed from the skin, collecting some skin cells. Those cells get sent off to a laboratory where they are tested for the genomic markers of melanoma. And with this test, there's a less than 1% chance of missing the diagnosis of melanoma. So it's either going to be done by your dermatologist or, you know, 
via telehealth, but being supervised by a dermatologist. Wow, that is uh, really, I mean, as, as simple as that is, uh, it sounds like anyone uh, can do this and everyone should. At this point, there should be really no excuse for not getting yourself screened. How uh, often should one get screened? Is this like a, a yearly, every six months? Uh, you know, How often should that screening happen? So we recommend, you know, for an average person to get screened once a year. If okay. you've had skin cancer, then you will be screened more commonly than that. And given that May is Melanoma and Skin Cancer Awareness Month, it's a great time to remind everyone that if you haven't already get checked, that you should go out and get checked. And so DermTech uh, has had a, you know, issued a campaign called Stick It to Melanoma, whereby every individual who takes a pledge to go and get their skin checked DermTech will make a $5 donation to their nonprofit partners that focus on skin health. So now is the time. If you haven't done it, you really should make an appointment. No excuses. Again, dermatologist Dr. Julie Karen with us uh, this morning. Where do we get more information? So information both about the DermTech melanoma test and as well about the Stick It to Melanoma campaign can be found on the DermTech.com website. So urge you to check it out. Dr. Karen, thanks very much for the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that will put a wraps on our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage, that is goodmornings.net. So we invite you to check that out. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we have details on a fundraiser put together by students at Findlay High School involved in Key Club aimed at helping their fellow students graduate. This is a great story. Till tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.